Join with me in prayer right now. Father, a simple prayer is that same prayer we've heard throughout Revelation. Give us ears to hear. Lord, give us ears to hear today. In Jesus' name, amen. Every day you and I face pressure to compromise our allegiance to Jesus Christ, to shift the focus of our lives off of Jesus, uh, to pull us off course, even if just by a degree. It happens all the time. It happens in big and small ways. The pressure from a group of friends to do things you know God tells you not to do. The social pressure to adjust your views on certain subjects just so that there's less friction in the flow of culture or the subtle pressure to value something in your heart greater than Jesus Christ. Professor N.T. Wright says it's a deadly serious thing to be a Christian. I don't think we've appropriately caught that in our comfortable Western church. But in a world where real powers oppose the kingdom of God, the call of faithfulness, patience, and holiness, it is a deadly serious thing. I think that's one of the reasons why Revelation scares a lot of people. Um, Certainly there's some wild images and beasts, but mainly because it reveals that this life of faith is a deadly serious thing. The writer John understood the nature of that. John is exiled on an island called Patmos because he refused to bow to Caesar. He's experiencing in real time the call to patient endurance as he follows Jesus. And the vision God gives to John is faith building. The curtain is pulled back on reality. Remember, we've been talking about that's what revelation is. It's an apocalypse. An apocalypse is an unveiling of reality that's always been there, just hidden, out of view. So the curtain gets pulled back and he sees this revelation of Jesus Christ at the center of all things, at the center of reality, the slain lamb, Jesus. But then John also sees other things, the reality of dark forces that are opposing the lamb of God. It's the dragon named Satan. Pastor Nick last week gave a really fine message on chapter 12. And chapters 13 and 14, which we're looking at today, are like part two of what Pastor Nick began last Sunday. Because we see now how the dragon, which we read about in chapter 12 last week, the dragon Satan has two accomplices, two beasts that John sees now and he speaks to us about. One is a frightening beast that comes out of the sea. It's a beast that's given power and authority by the dragon. And it symbolized Rome and any and every government that opposes God's purposes that has come after Rome. It's the state. It's human kingdoms and governments that have pushed God out of the center and have pushed themselves and call for allegiance and compliance of all to the whims of that government. The other beast is the beast from the earth. This second beast is perhaps even more frightening. It's faith. It's religion of whatever stripe that has been corrupted and controlled and now used by the darkness. John is showing us the forces in the universe that will put pressure on us to not trust God. These pressures that seek to seduce us, to put our trust in in a powerful strongman government or systems and structures of power themselves. Let's take a look at it. First, we see a beast that comes from the sea. We read, it had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on its horns and each head 
a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. What John describes here, this beast with seven heads and ten horns, he's replaying a vision, actually, that any Old Testament reader would have known right away. The prophet of Daniel, who saw in a vision four figures, an animal like a lion, like a bear, like a leopard, and then a fourth indescribable animal. And these four animals represented four different kingdoms of that time. But the beast John here describes combines the qualities of all those four beasts. It's like he's talking about one superpower of a beast. And John's readers, again, would have known this right away, clued in. This, this is the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire that seemed all-powerful, invincible in every way, and its emperors that were blasphemously attributing divinity to themselves, either allowing for emperor worship or actually insisting on emperor worship. And John, in this picture, is showing how easily politics turns demonic. How the legitimate power of the state can morph into something that is so corrupt. Now, maybe this surprises you. If you're a Christian, it might surprise you. Because as a Christian, we believe that there is a legitimate authority and power that the government exercises. In fact, Romans 13, the Apostle Paul talks about this. He describes government authorities as ordained by God and as ministers of God. Interesting way to describe it. And that's why we, as a church, encourage Christians to to bear witness within the political process, to participate in politics, to be part of a godly exercise of authority for the common good. So how do we reconcile what Paul says in Romans 13 with what John captures in this vision here? Well, John is revealing how a legitimate civil authority gets corrupted. And turns beastly. The beastly quality of the beast is its pretensions to absolute authority. John wants us to see that the beastliness of political power is born out of a blasphemy. The illusion that with political power you can do anything under the cover of law and power. This past week... uh, With all that's going on in our world, I've been reading the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail. It was a letter written on scraps of paper from prison and addressed to some of the white Christian ministry colleagues of his in Birmingham. And he was trying to explain why his black brothers and sisters could no longer wait and deal with the status quo. Quote, You express a great deal of anxiety over our willingness to break laws. There's certainly a legitimate concern. Since we so diligently urge people to obey the Supreme Court's decision of 1954 outlawing segregation in public schools, at first glance, he writes, it may seem rather paradoxical for us consciously to break laws. One may well ask, how can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying other laws? The answer lies in the fact that there are two types of laws, just and unjust. I would be the first to advocating obeying moral law, just laws. One not only has a legal but a moral responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. I would agree with St. Augustine, says King, that an unjust law is no law at all. Dr. King reminds us of Romans 13 that government 
and law have a legitimacy only so far as they reflect the character and authority of God himself. So if they are unjust, we must bear witness to one another and to, this, to another kingdom. We must bear witness to another form of politics, the politics of the kingdom. And so some of us do that by protesting when that happens. There's been a lot of protests and many Protestants protest because you know what? It's in our DNA. Protestants protest, don't we? But remember the politics of Jesus, the slain lamb. The politics of Jesus are radically different. I think we love to hear about the reign of God over all things, right? But we're often less fond of hearing how God exercises that power in vulnerability, in suffering, by dying, by giving up one's life. That is the way the lamb overcomes The way Jesus gets things done is not by grasping for power or manipulating the political process, but by washing others' feet. Whenever we place our deepest hopes in the mechanisms of power or a political movement or politics itself, look out, because you've got the makings of a beast on your hands. And that beast, you know what, it can be dressed in whatever political color of your choosing. Conservative blue, liberal red, orange, green, whatever. But Jesus overcomes the principalities and powers, not by force of law, but on the cross. He subverts the world's very operating procedures. The world operates by grasping for power, by developing powers of structures, structures of power. Jesus subverts that all. The king, Jesus said this, the king of the Gentiles lorded over them and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactor. But you are not like that. What the dragon using the beast from the sea does is tap into all of our fears and anxieties and gets us to place our trust in the strong man, in government, to find there our hope instead of in the living God. So it really forces us to ask as we look around culture, where is our greatest hope? Is it a leader? Is it a party? Is it a movement to bring about ultimate peace and order? As Christians, we say our living hope is Jesus Christ. Now, there's a second beast in John's vision. This time coming from the earth. Not the sea, but from the earth this time. But there's something strange about this beast. The beast, we read, is like a lamb. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose fatal wound had been healed. This beast is like a lamb, but has the voice of a dragon. It's a parody of Jesus. The beast is literally a dragon in sheep's clothes. It is religion and the symbols of religion, like a Bible, but co-opted by forces of darkness. Jesus himself said it. There will be many people who will be like sheep, but inwardly will be like wolves. So watch out. The beast that looks like a lamb is actually working with the dragon to get people to pledge their allegiance in other powers, in the spirit of the age, and they're using religion to do it. One of the saddest examples, of course, is in Germany. Before the rise of the Third Reich, there was what was called the Weimar Republic. And during that time, um, much of the German church was co-opted by the spirit of the age, by Nazism. 
which as I reflect on, that's a sobering reality, isn't it? To realize that this moment we're in right now, where racism's ugly head is revealed in all its horror, it's sobering to realize we've been here before as a people, as a humanity, a different target population, but the same horrific, sinful dynamic of racism at play. Sin is a stubborn, complex reality that is so very hard to stamp out. We can't underestimate it. A few summers ago, Betty and I were in Berlin. We were traveling there, and uh, we visited um, a museum called the Topography of Terror. Berlin's not always an easy place to visit because of its hard, hard history. That museum is located on the very site of the Gestapo headquarters, and the museum chronicles the rise of Nazism in Germany. And I was moved by one particular photo. You see it here on the screen. This is a photo of a very young German pastor. Look at how young that guy looks. He's a pastor in the Evangelical Reformed Church. He was imprisoned. He was killed by the Nazis for what? For the crime of praying for Jews. This young pastor followed the slain lamb, resisted the beast with an act of worship. A simple prayer. There were others who stood up, but the vast majority of the church was co-opted. It became part of that second beast. It gave religious legitimacy to the evil exercise of authority. And whenever Christians and the church get co-opted by the spirit of the age, it morphs into the beast on earth. Whenever we get captivated by the values of the surrounding culture, caught up in the flow of cultural ideologies, we miss the call of Christ to take up our cross. I think it's passages like this that should always lead the church to continually interrogate ourselves. Have we been blinded by the spirit of the age somehow? Are we somehow participating in systems or principalities that are of the dragon? Those are questions we need to ask. But what about Toronto in this secular age? You know, for most people in our culture, they're not looking at the church as, you know, this second beast from, this, from the, the sea. And yet, we still see a proclivity, a tendency in our culture to get co-opted by the spirit of the age, to get caught up in it, to not see its power. Because here's a truth we need to take deeply into our lives. We all worship something, and we become what we worship. We all worship something, and we eventually become what we worship. I've used this quote many times. It comes from uh, postmodern novelist David Foster Wallace. It's from his Kenyan college commencement speech. And he says, there's no such thing as not worshiping. Now, David Foster Wallace is not a Christian, but he is astutely seeing some truth. He says, there's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The The only choice we get is what to worship. And anything else you worship will eat you alive, he says. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap your real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, he says, we already know this stuff. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The whole trick, he says, is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power 
and you will end up feeling weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Then this comment, he says, but the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful. It's that they're unconscious. They are our default settings. They're the kind of worship you gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that's what you're doing. That's how the second beast works. Unconsciously, something you gradually slip into. John describes for us the mark of this beast on the right hand, on the forehand. Some people think it's an actual mark of the beast. Scholars tell us, no, you know, it's a symbol. The background of this mark of the beast is Deuteronomy 6. So in the Jewish tradition, Moses calls people to put scripture on your right hand and on your forehead as a reminder of the truth and wisdom of God, something that guides your beliefs, something that guides your actions, your hand, the works of your hands. So we need to ask, what's marking your life? Have you intentionally set the character and teachings of Jesus on your hand, on your heart, in your behaviors, in your beliefs? What is it that you dwell most on? What guides the actions of your hands and heart? When we remain unaffected by the prejudice and injustice against those who are black, indigenous, people of color, have we marked our hands with 666? When career or financial success so invades our thinking, have we placed on our forehead 666? When liberal-minded Christians find themselves so closely similar to like-minded non-Christians than they are to maybe their conservative brothers and sisters and vice versa, I wonder if we bear in our minds the spirit of age rather than the spirit of Christ. Forget whether the mark of the beast is, you know, going to be filled by some computer chip or something that's placed under your skin. Be afraid, I think, of this powerful imagery that is constantly fulfilled when we idolize human things, making them ultimate things. See, worship is intimately tied to our lives. What we worship shapes us. It's what we become. And so there's always pressure luring us to be marked by the spirit of the age. But the call to every follower of Jesus is to resist the beast. To overcome the spirit of the age. But how? What could possibly equip us to stand? Well, look at Revelation 14. We didn't read it, read it later on. But here we catch a vision of worship. Which is surprising. If you're like me, you're hoping for a scene, I don't know, of action, right? Of Jesus just taking it to the beasts. But remember, the slain lamb has already overcome. We resist the beast through lives shaped by worship of the true living God. Because worship orients us, aligns us with the reality of God's kingdom. One black journalist I've been following these past weeks um, has observed something missing from the protests. She's all in favor of these protests, glad for them, but she says there's been little or no singing. So few songs in these protests. 
There's a spiritual impoverishment in our secular culture, which makes us susceptible to being co-opted by the beast. And right now, people are looking to fill that vacuum, right, with some sense of meaning. And without worship to center us on God, we go out into the world and we are so prone to being taken in by the spirit of the age. Because we all worship something. We need this. What we do here in church every Sunday, we need this. This is a foundational practice because we needed to be reminded that the way of God is through vulnerable love. It is the slain lamb who overcomes. We need to remind that every week. We need to learn that only those who have descended to the dead can be trusted to lead, actually. In this moment, as we face realities of racism, we need the space to lament the horror of this, to face our own sin through confession of our own complicity in the brokenness of the world, which leads our world then, leads us into our world to work for justice. And so we can do with an appropriate humility in our heart, in how we treat others. In confession, we die to ourselves and we come alive with Jesus. We need also to hear words of grace and forgiveness, to experience the power of the gospel, to free us from shame, and so enable us, empower us to love our enemies. Without the centering of worship on the supremacy of Christ, we become easy pickings for these two beasts. There's no avoiding politics in life, friends. We're all given by God agency, a power we must exercise on behalf of the living God. And it's a power that we can use to build up or to tear down, to bless or to curse. Power doesn't disappear when we become a Christian. But worship trains us in the way of the Lamb. Worship trains us to be people who exercise that power, to be people of faith and hope and love even in the darkest of hours. So resist the beast, friends, by worshiping the Lamb. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.